uh, led the service last week while I was out of town, Richard for preaching, and Andy, uh, and also uh, Chris Fryer helped lead worship. Chris isn't here this morning, but uh, thank you to Andy. Thank you to the elders who uh, helped lead the other parts of, of the service last week. It's good to know that uh, I can be out of town and, and trust that uh, um, service is in, in good hands, um, worship is in good hands. Uh, like most family trips, you know, this trip wasn't so much about rest as it was uh, seeing family out of town. Uh, I did enjoy going to a baptismal service at my parents' small country church. It was an outdoor service, just something memorable about this service. You're sitting in a lawn chair under a big rented tent and looking out and up ahead at the front, you see this portable baptistry that they have, and behind that... Uh, well, a road, and behind that, I don't know, half a mile of soybeans and then grain bin there. And uh, the couple that they were baptizing had moved to um, rural Ohio kind of on a whim when they retired. They were originally from Long Island, New York, if you can believe it, and decided to find someplace quieter to, to retire and ended up moving and, and settled down, uh, moved in next to some neighbors who invited them to this Bible study. And... Um, the rest is, is history. Uh, it ends with the, where the story began. They're baptized upon their profession of faith that Sunday morning. So, you know, who can fathom the way that God works? Uh, you just can never, never plan or predict uh, the ways God, God can work. Uh, all free bonus material, I guess. Uh, free of charge. It has nothing to do with the sermon. Also, uh, one of my kids ended up being a sermon illustration uh, during that service, so you can't escape that if you're a pastor's kid, I guess. But fortunately, it was the one who doesn't mind uh, being the center of attention sometimes, so that all worked out really well. Well, today, as you've noted, uh, the sermon text is from Luke, and if you've been here for a while, I'm not going back to the, the series on Luke and setting it back several chapters, uh, so set your mind at ease. We are still in this uh, Q&A sermon series based on suggestions from uh, the congregation. And the question that was asked that we're looking at today, I don't know if I'm answering it or just sort of responding or addressing it, uh, what community services can we offer as servants of the Lord? That's the question. What community services can we offer as servants of the Lord? And let me say at the outset, I think that's an excellent question to be asking. Uh, what's unique about this, all the questions have been excellent questions, but this is an outward-focused question. How can we help those around us? How can we serve Christ by serving our neighbors? That's a great question for us as a church to even think about asking. But at face value, it's kind of difficult to answer in a sermon. You know, I, Just a list of service opportunities for whether it's as an individual or uh, service opportunities for us as a church. You know, that's either just some recommendations I can give an individual, list some things that are out there, or, or it's a brainstorming session uh, as, as a church or a small group within the church just trying to think about what the needs are in our community and how can we reach those. That's, that's, I can't do that as a sermon, right? I'm not going to proclaim here's what we must do. Uh, what I plan to do is just try to sharpen our, our thinking a little bit about this topic of service to the the community? How do we think about helping those in need? How does that fit with the overall mission and purpose of the church? What should our attitude be? This is a big topic, by the way, with lots of different thoughts uh, bouncing around out there in, in the world on uh, among churches. How, how do we approach this idea of, of 
community service and mercy ministry, we might call it. And so I've been thinking about it, and a lot of my ideas are half-baked or not put together and necessarily as clear as I'd like them to be at this point. So um, this might be a rambling sermon a little bit, but we'll make it through. Uh, Hang in there. I I will warn you also, this is a complicated topic, and it's also a debated topic. Uh, When we think of community service, we typically go to helping those in need. When we think of the needy, we think of poverty, and any discussion of poverty is invariably going to take on a political flavor, and politically flavored conversations uh, can get heated pretty quickly. It can leave a bad taste in your mouth. Thank you, Pastor Obvious, right? So I I wonder, uh, just thinking about this, I wonder what conversations people might have had when they first heard Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Because I can imagine somebody saying, you know, it was a beautiful thing that the Samaritan took care of of that man. But this is a bigger problem than just one robbery victim. You know, the the Jericho Road was known for being a dangerous road to travel, full of robbers. Crimes like this happen every day on the Jericho Road. How can we stop this from happening in, in the first place? Why not love our neighbor by finding some way to make the the road to Jericho safer to begin with. And there might be various solutions that get proposed from there. Maybe somebody says, um, we need more policing along the Jericho Road. We need better funding to supply uh, more armed uh, policemen uh, to keep the peace, to protect travelers. Well, that idea would be quickly shot down in, in Jewish circles. I'm not sure it would even be suggested, because in the Roman world, policing was done by Roman soldiers, by the military. So you want to recruit more soldiers for Rome and collect more taxes to pay them? On top of the tax hike, we know from John the Baptist's exhortation to the Roman soldiers not to extort people, that Roman soldiers are just as likely to essentially rob the citizens as those robbers were. So we're just trading one kind of robbery for another, right? Uh, Maybe somebody suggests a different angle. Maybe uh, we need to get to the root of the problem. Why do so many people end up becoming thieves on the Jericho Road to begin with? Uh, Maybe it has to do with Maybe it has to do with that very same Roman uh, oppression. We need to get the Romans out. It's the position of the the zealots. Let's overthrow Rome, and then we can prosper again. We won't have this problem of of poverty. Or maybe you could take a different approach to it. You know, the the issue, people turn to crime because of uh, poverty, broken homes, addiction. We need to reach out to the at-risk youth of Judea, uh, provide education and job training, and at that point, Somebody interrupts, you know, Crimea River. You know, everybody knows the Jericho Road is a dangerous road to travel. So anyone who's so stupid to go down that road alone clearly had it coming. This guy put himself in that situation. That's not my problem, right? Uh, Maybe somebody else jumps in and tries to soften that a little bit. You know, your your tone's a little harsh, but you've got a point. If you're trying to travel the Jericho Road, you know, it's, it's dangerous to go alone. Take a sword with you as... The old Legend of Zelda game said. So, you know, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a sword is a good guy with a sword. So now they're going to start debating sword control laws in the Roman world, and the conversation really starts to spiral on this first century uh, Facebook feed. Uh, we seem to have wandered pretty far from Jesus' point, though, about uh, loving your neighbor by showing mercy. But notice it did start off with a good question uh, How does love of neighbor? How does love of neighbor play out, not just on that individual situation, but you know, when we start thinking about the big picture? Is it wrong to think a little bit bigger picture? I don't, don't think so, but the big picture discussion does take us into the realm of, of 
politics, and at that point, things start to get complicated. You start asking questions that the Bible doesn't give us the direct, cut-and-dried answer that we might want. So in this big, murky mess, there's going to be a lot of rabbit trails, again, that I can't really chase down for us. And I think the best I can do is to look at how the Bible does encourage us to love our neighbor and then maybe provide a few cautions, uh, clarifications as we go. So there are different reactions uh, as I move toward that first point of encouragement to serve. Different reactions maybe to that question of how do we serve our our community. At at one end of the spectrum, somebody might say, let's not do that, let's just preach the gospel. The real power to transform lives, I hope we all agree, is the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. Christ died to set us free from guilt and and condemnation. On the other hand, freedom from poverty, oppression, even slavery, that's not a guarantee of the gospel. Um, One example might be as D.L. Moody spoke, uh, he called the world a, a sinking ship. This world is a sinking ship. We can't fix it. It's going down. Just try to get as many people on the life raft as, as we can. Uh, you might quote Acts 3. Peter told the, 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 the beggar uh, who was looking to them for, for uh, alms, for, for financial contributions. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. Yeah. We have the gospel. That's what we give the world. At the other end of the spectrum, someone else might be thinking, well, that sounds an awful lot like the attitude that James rails against in James 2 with this whole faith without works thing. Faith without works is dead. You see somebody who lacks food, clothing, and you just say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, you don't help with their needs. You know, what, what good is that? What good are you, R- right? Uh, John, uh, the apostle, makes a similar point in his first letter. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The implied answer is it doesn't. Just preach the gospel maybe sounds a lot like loving in words and talk, but not loving in deeds and truth. And there are even those, if you go really far in that direction, who would prioritize deeds and truth to the extent that they might say, you know, people people are suffering while ivory tower theologians just bicker and argue about little things like, justification by faith alone or whose works save us you know how to how to get to heaven your eternal destiny little things like that uh, apparently when we what we really need to get to do is, is just to get to work doing the things that Jesus told us to do and I, I don't think either extreme uh, either end of that spectrum is really helpful or, or biblical uh, the gospel is important on the one hand it is central Christ is central We need to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Like Paul in Galatians, we should get feisty when people try to add works into the mix, which is what that, forget forget justification and just do what Jesus said to do. That's what it's doing. That's, That's law, right? But speaking of Galatians, it's interesting that Paul, he mentions concern for the poor in chapter 2 of Galatians, and this is where Paul says, he, he, tells that story of when he went to the elders, uh, leaders, apostles, rather, in Jerusalem uh, at their church to make sure that they're on the same page about the gospel, because the church, as he'd been planning, he'd been having trouble with some legalists, Judaizers, coming from Jerusalem, 
Uh, and so he wants to go and he lays out the gospel he preaches to make sure that they're all on the same page. We are saved by grace through faith. And they are on the same page. But there's only one thing that the Jerusalem, Jerusalem leaders added. One thing that they said. Do you remember what it was? It's in Galatians 2.10. He said, they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. By the way, it, it does make sense that the Jerusalem church leaders would want to remind Gentile uh, Christians of this because care for the poor was, was highly valued in Jewish culture since it was commanded over and over again in the Old Testament. The law of Moses made provision for the poor, the or orphan, the foreigner, part of the, the communities, uh, the nation's responsibility. And the prophets blasted Israel for not doing what the law said about this. So even though not everyone actually did it or did it well, even though they they at least know that you think of people blowing horns and trying to make a big show of giving, um, they at least knew that they were supposed to do it in, in Jewish culture. And the, the church certainly uh, sought to live this out well, uh, the Jewish church in Jerusalem. So it makes sense that they would want to tell uh, the Gentile Christians, because the Gentile Christians really didn't have this as a strong part of their culture in the same way. There was more of a generalist. The poor probably deserve to be poor. In this great and glorious Roman Empire, if someone's poor, it's because they lack the strength or virtue or diligence you know, to really make something of themselves, and that's on them. You can ignore them. You can take advantage of them, and that's not considered injustice. It's just the way things work. If anything, it might be just. Interesting. I may be going really uh, off the beaten path here uh, down this point, but sometime in the middle of the 4th century, Roman emperor named Julian the Apostate drew some important connections between the mercy ministry and the rise of Christianity. Uh, Julian rejected Christianity and wanted to go back to the old Roman uh, pagan ways. That's why they call him Julian the Apostate. But in a letter to a high priest... Uh, he noted that part of why Christianity had spread was that Christians cared for the poor, not only other poor Christians, but poor pagans as well. And this was countercultural in, in Roman life, but the, the Christians inherited it from, from Jewish culture, which in turn learned it from the Old Testament scriptures. So back to Paul in Galatians, you know, he's very much concerned to defend the gospel in Galatians. He's willing to publicly correct Peter over this, even though Peter had been one of Jesus' closest friends. He tells the Galatians that if anyone tampers with the gospel, even if it's Paul himself or an angel from heaven, to regard that person as accursed, anathema. So he is, he, he is eager to defend and proclaim the gospel, and yet he's also eager uh, to do this one thing that the apostles in Jerusalem mentioned which is to remember the poor. As you're laboring as an apostle, as a missionary, planting churches, pro proclaiming the gospel, don't forget ministry to the poor. So it's apparently an important thing. And I do believe the New Testament emphasizes, has an uh, emphasis, primary emphasis on caring for one another within the church. That's where it starts. But that's, that doesn't mean that's where it stops. As if we get to ask, who is my neighbor? And the answer is just other Christians. You know, Matthew, 
chapter 5. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You know, Jesus told this whole parable of the good Samaritan in answer to that very question, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And the whole point in making the person who actually shows love a Samaritan is that your neighbor isn't just people like you or people you like, but anyone you come across who needs help that you are able to give. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. The kind of love that's not just words and talk, but deeds and truth. So the encouragement here is that loving and serving others in our community is part of how we put Christ first in our community. Church should be known for our love, certainly our love for one another, also our love for our neighbors. So, there is in Scripture a general command to care for those in need. I don't see that as, it's not liberalism, that's not socialism, it's the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Does that mean that we call this part of the mission of the church. This is where I'm moving towards some of the cautions that I might give here. You know, people do argue about whether we should consider uh, ministry to the poor as part of the church's mission. Uh, I'm not going to go into that whole debate because it's huge, but I'll just say it depends on what you mean by mission of the church. If mission of the church means every single thing that Christians ought to be doing, then of course that includes mercy ministry, but that's a pretty useless definition of the church's mission. If you're talking about our key or core purpose for which Christ has sent us into the world as a church, then no, I don't think it's helpful to say that mercy ministry is our mission. Our mission, if we go with Matthew 28, is to make disciples, make disciples by baptizing them, uh, which assumes evangelism, make disciples teaching them to obey. The gospel of Christ is the core of our mission because Christ is central to our purpose. We exist, as we say, to put Christ first. What I'm getting at here, what I'm trying to say, is that the local church is not a religious charity. This is the first real note of caution that I want to give. We should be asking the question, how can we serve our community? Preaching the gospel is not the only thing we do, but it is the main thing. Everything we do should be about putting Christ first. So speaking, just maybe practical examples will help with what I try to mean, uh, what I'm trying to say. Um, our church has to count the cost and, and consider uh, what we can do. If we're going to do something to serve our community as a church, we have to think about what we have the resources to do and to do well. There's nothing wrong with a church that decides to run a, a soup kitchen or some other mercy ministry if it has the ability to do that. But for a church our size, though, I think something like participating in the Coalition for People in Need is a good solution. If we were to decide to open up a charity like that ourselves and run it as a ministry within the church, we would be quickly overwhelmed in terms of volunteers and uh, probably out of money in short order. And if we did pull it off, we, we would have to pull it off by making it a huge part of what our church is, church is for, our, our life and our identity. Something like, again, coalition or the Matthew 25 shelter, these are good ways to 
pool resources to help those in need in our community. Parachurch organizations are really helpful here at allowing us to contribute to the needs of others without losing our core purpose as a church of gospel proclamation. That's not to say there aren't things that we can do on a smaller scale, right? At our old location, uh, we had some block parties, and in that, that was in part about serving our community. It didn't necessarily meet anyone's material needs uh, so much as it provided families uh, with something for their kids to, to look forward to, especially in uh, parts of town where they maybe couldn't just take them to uh, Six Flags or whatever. But you know, we could probably still think of short-term or annual projects we can do to, to serve our community. But my first caution is that there is a legitimate need to, to remember the central purpose of the church in proclaiming the gospel. If we go too eager, um, maybe eager is not the right word, but we, we just want to make sure that we understand the church is here to proclaim the gospel. We are not primarily a a charity in that sense. And this isn't because I think mercy ministry is some kind of slippery slope away from the gospel. You start caring for the poor, the next thing you know, you abandon the faith. Uh, but I think it's just pure practical reason. There are only so many things that we can do well. And there are plenty of organizations that do charitable work better than we can that we can participate in. And that enables us to focus on making disciples. A second caution is that we should be realistic about what it can look like to serve our community. Uh, there are plenty of things going on already. I've mentioned some of them, Coalition for People in Need, the Food Pantry, Matthew 25, you could add Standing Stone and the Pregnancy Center. I am confident that all of those organizations would be thrilled to have more volunteers. I've been going to some of the CPN board meetings and I, I know for sure they need uh, more volunteers. But you know, all of those things, maybe even along with block parties or other one-off service projects, do they just seem kind of ordinary and, and boring? You know, the good Samaritan, he rescued a man who was half dead and, and put him on his donkey, walked beside him all the way to the inn and paid for his care. Processing, processing an application uh, for utility assistance maybe just doesn't have the same kind of appeal. But Jesus' point was not that loving your neighbor always makes for a good story. His point was that loving your neighbor means responding to the needs of those around you, whether you're able, when you're able to do something about it. If that's processing applications or sorting through donations or whatever, then, then go and do likewise, right? The reality is that the world is broken and we are not going to be the ones to fix it. Now that doesn't mean that we don't try to make a difference or try to make things better uh, for those around us or in our little corner of, of the world. Even in the promised land, God told Israel, there will never cease to be poor in the land. But then he went on, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So the temptation might have been to give up at some point. Showing mercy isn't working because there are still poor in the land. God says it's precisely because they're never going to fix that problem that they need to be steadfast in showing mercy because it takes perseverance. So if you're looking for something new, something big, something dramatic, something that makes a good story, your expectations might be unrealistic. It's great if it happens that way, but the norm seems to be so much more ordinary. Well, my third caution, and this is the last caution, uh, is what's my motivation? Uh, why are we doing 
this. And the motivation in the parable, well, it, it's, it's compassion. I haven't flipped through the text here much, but um, here we go. I'll find it. Probably shouldn't sing like that. That's going to sound really weird on the recording if anybody listening to this online. But uh, compassion. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this man was. When he saw him, he had compassion. That was his motivation. Not what do I get out of it, but compassion for the one who's in need. I'm being Pastor Obvious again, right? Not about what I get out of it. But there are less obvious ways that this can creep in. And one sticky motivation, uh, just for example... Uh, might be church growth. If by church growth you mean you want to serve the community as a bridge for the gospel so we people, see people come to faith, yeah, that's a good motivation. On the other hand, if the real reason we want to pursue community service is to increase our numbers, get our name out there, be recognized for our efforts, then it might be more about marketing our organization than loving our neighbor. You know, it businesses need to think this way. If we're going to spend resources, we need to profit from it in some way. Uh, if we're not careful, that can seep into the church, though, and we might reason things like, you know, if we spent $3,000 on that block party, then we need to acquire maybe, say, goal is to acquire at least one family unit giving a full tithe on 40Ks, and that's a 25% return for that fiscal year or something like that, or you know, maybe you help somebody uh, with a deposit on an apartment or something like that, but they end up going to a different church. Maybe it feels like it was a waste of resources. What did Jesus tell the rich young ruler, another man who came to him with a question? Uh, Sell all you have, distribute to the poor, and then what? And then you'll have treasure in heaven. I think this is just an important point to bear in mind, even with the nobler motivation of mercy ministry as a bridge for the gospel. Helping someone in need stores up treasure in heaven, even if that's as far as it goes. You help them, but they're going to a different church, no church at all, they've rejected the gospel. That's not the outcome we want, not what we're praying for, not what we're striving for. Maybe there are things we wish we'd done differently, could have done better, but you know what? we were faithful to what God called us to do, that's still treasure in heaven. Our goal is to put the gospel on display, to love others the way Christ loved us in both word and in deed. I mentioned this before a while back. I think, I think it was even the parable of the Good Samaritan that I, I preached on in a more verse-by-verse verse, uh, typical kind of way, but... Um, the Greek word that Luke uses for compassion literally has to do with internal organs, especially lower internal organs. Uh, this has led to some very funny uh, archaic translations. Uh, Isaac Watts, 18th century hymn writer who wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and also the version of Psalm 23 we, we, read, we sang earlier, he had a hymn uh, that begins, and this is about compassion, mind you, Blessed is the man whose bowels move melt with pity to the poor. This is why the literal, most literal translation is not always the best translation. But the other uses of this word compassion in Luke and scripture in general tend to be all about God's compassion for us. In Luke, it's his tender mercies. It's the compassion of the father in the parable of the prodigal son, Christ's compassion on a widow whose son had died. It's about God's compassion second verse of the hymn by Mr. Watts says, 
His heart contrives for their relief more good than his hands can do. He, in the time of general grief, shall find the Lord has bowels too. Maybe that's not the best way to put it. Never mind that. But his point, what he's getting at, is that it's God's compassion on us poured out in Christ that ought to drive us to compassion toward our neighbors. We love because he first loved us. We pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Freely you have received, freely give. In other words, guess what I'm trying to say, maybe this is the best way to sum it up, is that the mercy of Christ is both our message and our motivation. If we are enamored by the compassion of Christ, awestruck by the compassion that he has poured out on us, lavished on us, then there's nothing we want more than to tell others about his mercy. But his mercy also shapes the way that we act, the way that we treat one another as well. I want to close with words from another hymn. This is not Isaac Watts. This is more recent, so uh, there won't be any more of that business. Uh, this is um, a hymn by uh, Stuart Townen and Keith and Kristen Getty, best known for modern hymn, In Christ Alone. Uh, I really think helps drive home this point about uh, compassion of, of Christ and how it motivates us. They say, there is an everlasting kindness you lavished on us when the radiance of heaven came to rescue the lost. You called the sheep without a shepherd to leave their distress for your streams of forgiveness and the shade of your rest. And with compassion for the hurting, you reached out your hand as the lame ran to meet you and the dead breathed again. You saw behind the eyes of sorrow and shared in our tears, heard the sigh of the weary, let the children draw near. We stood beneath the cross of Calvary and gazed on your face at the thorns of oppression and the wounds of disgrace. For surely you have borne our suffering and carried our grief as you pardoned the scoffer and showed grace to the thief. How beautiful the feet that carry this gospel of peace to the fields of injustice and the valleys of need to be a voice of hope and healing to answer the cries of the hungry and helpless with the mercy of Christ. What boundless love, what fathomless grace you have shown us, O God of compassion. Each day we live an offering of praise as we show to the world your compassion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the compassion that you have shown us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We, in, in and of ourselves, we are sinful people. We had rebelled and rejected you. But you saw not only the sin and the need for forgiveness, but you had compassion on us. Compassion on us even though the wounds that we suffered from were deserved and self-inflicted. You were still a God of compassion, pouring out grace on us. Grace that is not cheap, but free. We are in awe of 
your mercy and grace. You are truly a God of love and God of grace. As we think about the world in which we live and how you have redeemed us, not, not simply to enjoy your gifts, but to go on this mission, to participate in your mission in this world, we often wrestle with what it means to, to live in a world that is so full of need and pain and, and suffering, knowing that what our neighbors ultimately need is this gospel of peace, knowing that there are other needs as well, and knowing even that we are insufficient to meet such deep needs as are out there in, in the world and um, knowing how difficult and often uh, divisive some of these discussions are. But I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us insight and pray most of all that you would give us compassion and that your mercy would lead us to show mercy to those around us and that where we are insufficient that we would see that you are a God who works in ways that we never could have planned or predicted. May we see your love and mercy poured out uh, to those around us as we seek to, in obedience to Christ, put Christ first in our communities. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.